female folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. What is the monkey doing? Tell me what's going on. He ripped her face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed. Baby Azaria Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Hey, baby! Welcome back to Man Eaters, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. I'm your host, Papa Bear Jimby, and thank you for joining me for the second part of our Best of 2021 and 2022 series. As I said last week, what better way to cap off a year? A, a, a a massive year, a jam-packed year, then by looking back on the stories that were. Uh, and so we last episode looked back on a couple stories from 2021, as well as some from early 2022. This episode, we're looking at some stories, I believe some from early 2021 again, um, but then going a little bit more recently in our, what would you call this, podcastography? What's like a discography before a podcast? Podcast catalog? I don't know. It doesn't really matter. That's what we're doing today. And if you're not keen for it, then click off. I don't know what to, I'm so, I'm sorry. I'm on some new medication and it makes me really mad when I think people aren't going to be keen to listen to the thing. Um, but I am sure you're keen. So anyway, um, let's jump into it. So we're looking at our first story today, and this was one of the first episodes I ever recorded. Um, this is from episode five, I believe. Yes, episode five, the Savo man-eating lions. So of course, the bread and butter of this podcast is man-eating big cats, and this was the second uh, batch of man-eating cats that we talked about, of course, after the legendary Chumpawat Tiger. Uh, it's also the only lions, I believe, I've covered so far on the podcast, but trust me, we'll be getting more of them ASAP. So the Savo Manning Lions were a pair of lions, I believe from, I'm thinking Kenya, Kenya and Uganda, I think it was. Um, they're on the top 10 list for sure, as well as uh, for serial killer animals. They terrorized the workers of a railway corridor in um, in Kenya and Uganda uh, for ages, and they had to bring in a professional hunter to to take them down. Um, and uh, yeah, no, so it's a really interesting story, very scary, very spooky. And I believe a movie came out recently, I'm blanking on the name, um, because they didn't sponsor the episode. If they sponsored the episode, I'm telling you, I'd remember the name very well. But it's a new movie starring Idris Elba, um, and I think it's about... At least I think it's based on this, the the uh, Savo Manning Lions. And um, my friend, pal of the podcast, Marty Worrell, who does listen to this, so shout out to Marty if you're there, um, has told me that there is a, actually a movie about this story. Uh, but again, I'm blanking on the name, so I might look it up and let you know at the end. But yeah, have, jump into it. This is the Savo's Man-Eating, La- Man-Eating Lions story. So enjoy. Today we are talking about the Savo man-eaters, which were a pair of maneless African lions uh, which terrorized the construction of a railway in the very last years of the 1800s. Um, This is quite a lengthy story, so we're not going to spend a lot of time in this introduction. We are going to jump straight into it, but before we do that, I just want to mention that my primary source um, for the research for this story um, was actually a book called, and I want to get the name right, so let me see, the book is called The Man-Eaters of Savo, um, which is actually written by J.H. Patterson, who actually is the guy who hunted and killed down the lions, so it is a primary source, it's basically a first-hand, a first-hand uh, retelling of how he uh, took down these man-eating lions um, and all the adventures he went on. The lions really only appear in the first nine chapters of the book, um, if you are interested in reading it, it is available free on Wikisource. That's where I got it. Um, it's where are we up to? Yes. So 
I only read the first few chapters that sort of involved the lions, um, but there are like, I'm just looking now, there's other chapters that look really interesting. Uh, a Knight with a Hippo, that sounds sexy. Um, an Infuriated Rhino, <laughs> Rhino. These, these sound really cool. I'm probably gonna read this entire book at some point, um, but yeah, like I said, um, I mainly focus on the first few chapters. Um, there is so much information about these man-eaters, guys. It, it, it's a little overwhelming. Um, there's no way I could possibly fit every single detail into the story um, within the time frame that we have for this podcast. So I'm going to try and be as concise as possible while also um, going over everything that I think is important in the story. But like I said, if you are interested in reading more about this, um, you can visit um, The Man Eaters of Savo on Wikisource. I'll link it in the description for this episode um, so you can you can find that very easily. But it is a good book. It's pretty well written. Um, and yeah, like, you know, one day in the future, maybe I'll revisit this story and do like an hour long episode where I can go into a lot more detail. But yeah, I think I've done a pretty good job of getting, <laughs> getting all the important details out there. So without further ado, <laughs> what? Without further ado, Adieu. Without that, um, let's jump into the story. This is The Man-Eating Lions of Savo. It's the late 1890s in Kenya. Construction of the Kenyan-Ugandan Rail Corridor is underway. The project is deeply unpopular in the UK, with many decrying it as exorbitantly expensive and not returning much benefit to the people of England. British MP Henry Labuschagne has just published this scathing poem about the project. What it will cost, no words can express. What is its object, no brain can suppose. Where it will start from, no one can guess. Where is it going, nobody knows. What is the use of it, no one can conjecture. What it will carry, there is none who can define. And in spite of George Curzon's superior lecture, it is clearly naught but a lunatic line. To ensure that construction of a railway bridge over the Savo River runs smoothly, the Uganda Rail Committee, based in London, commissions John Henry Patterson to oversee the construction effort. Patterson arrived in Mombasa on March 1st, 1898. He was quickly directed to a region inland called Savo. His mission was to oversee the construction of a permanent structure, which would become Savo Station, and to finish construction of all other railway elements for 50 kilometers on either side of a temporary bridge. Patterson felt confident the job could be carried out on time and with minimal setbacks. He had no idea just how wrong he was. A mere two days after arriving in Savo, Patterson started receiving reports of men being carried off by a pair of maneless African lions. Initially, Patterson didn't give much weight to these stories and thought it was far more likely that these men had met foul play at the hands of some of their co-workers. This theory was quickly dispelled after a Sikh man named Ungan Singh was attacked in his tent and carried off into the night. The next morning, a search party was formed. Patterson and his brigade of mostly Indian and native African workers quickly found the remains of Singh. In his book, Patterson writes, The ground all around was covered with blood and morsels of flesh and bone, but the unfortunate Jemadir's head had been left intact, save for the holes made by the lion's tusks on seizing him, and lay a short distance away from the other remains, the eyes staring wide open with a startled, horrified look in them. The place was considerably cut up, and on closer examination we found that two lions had been there, and had probably struggled for possession of the body. It was the most gruesome sight I had ever seen. Over the next few nights, the lions returned and carried out more attacks on the workmen, or coolies, as Patterson refers to them in his book. The campsites around the rail corridor were spread out at this point of construction, so the lions had a range of up to 12 kilometers around Savo to work in. Each night, Patterson would sit up in a tree with a rifle and a shotgun, hoping to get a shot at the lions. 
the big cats could either sense which campsite Patterson was covering, or had incredible luck, as they always struck tents that were unprotected by a sniper. Patterson notes that in this early stage of the struggle with the lions, not every attempt made by the man-eaters was successful. One incident occurred where a lion pounced on an Indian trader who was riding on a donkey at night. The man and the donkey were knocked over, but somehow in the attack the lion had entangled itself with a rope tied to several empty oil canisters. The clattering of the metal cans frightened the lion so much that it ran off without harming either the trader or the donkey. Another attack failed when one of the lions burst through the roof of a tent, and rather than grabbing a worker, beat into a sack of rice and carried it off. The rice was found just outside the tent where it was dropped, presumably when the lion realised its mistake. Even though lion attacks were frightening and a cause for concern, the majority of the workers were relatively unfazed by the events of the last few weeks. At this stage in construction, there were around two to 3,000 workers in Savo, and most of the men thought that the odds of the lions picking them in particular out of thousands of options was highly unlikely. This good mood disappeared when the construction of a permanent structure was completed and the bulk of the men were sent down the line to continue working on tracks and other structures. This left only a few hundred men at Savo to carry out the rest of the work. By this time, Workers had started to build thorn fences, or bombers, around their tents. They were built thick and high, but it didn't dissuade the lions, who often leapt over or broke through the bombers. The attacks continued. One night, a man who was sleeping with his feet near the edge of the tent was taken. The lion had jumped over the bomber, and had managed to get his paws underneath the canvas of the tent. The man was carried off without a trace. Each night, Patterson waited in a tree, or on a platform, hoping to get a shot, but he was helpless and had to listen to the screams of the men being eaten alive. The next day, his remains were found just a short distance from the camp. All that was left were the man's skull, his lower jaw, a few larger bones, and his palm with a few fingers still attached, one of which had a silver ring. The ring and the man's teeth were sent to his widow in his home in India. Patterson and a camp physician named Dr. Rose concocted a plan shortly after this. A tent was left abandoned and a live cow was placed inside as bait. Patterson and Dr. Rose hid in a goods wagon just outside the tent with a clear line of fire from the door of the wagon. For a few hours, there was nothing. Then, they heard a twig snap, and heard a soft thud. This was the lion leaping over the thorn fence. They kept their eyes trained on the hut, but in the dead of the night it was difficult to see anything. Patterson wondered why the lion was taking so long inside the tent. Turned out that the lion had never actually entered the tent, and was instead outside, quietly stalking the men in the wagon. There was a moment's silence, and then a massive figure sprung at the men. The lion! cried Patterson, and both men fired their rifles at the same time. The blinding muzzle flash as well as the reverberating noise of the shots in the wagon caused the lion to bound off. This close encounter with the men in the wagon must have scared the lions off, because they did not return to the camp for a considerable amount of time. During this period, work on the railway moved relatively smoothly. Patterson did have some trouble with the workers, but since it isn't super relevant to the lions, we'll breeze over it. If you do want to know more about this, read chapters 3 and 4 of The Man Eaters of Savo. In the time of peace, the workers and Patterson felt a sense of relief, and relaxed some of their safety practices. The men started sleeping outside again to keep cool, and the use of bombers was reduced. Patterson writes, As a matter of fact, it was some months before the lions attacked us again, though from time to time we heard of their depredations in other quarters. Not long after our night in the goods wagon, two men were carried off from Railhead, while another was taken from a place called Engonami, about 10 miles away. Within a very short time, this latter place was visited again by the Bruins, two more men being seized, one of whom was killed and eaten, and the other so badly mauled that he died within a few days. As I have said, however, we at Savo enjoyed complete immunity from the attacks, and the coolies, believing their dreaded foes had permanently been deserted from the district, resumed all their usual habits and occupations, and life in the camps returned to its normal routine. 
Deciding not to let this breathing space go to waste, Patterson and his men constructed a massive trap which he hoped would help catch the lion. It was built using railway supplies and Patterson even used shots from his rifle to punch holes in the iron to string rope through. The trap was placed partially inside a tent. The trap itself contained an open-ended section the lion could enter. It would then trigger a switch inside which would cause the cage to close. Men slept in the tent as bait, although the cage would make it impossible for the lion to attack them. Eventually, the man-eater's reign of terror recommenced, and the lions attacked and killed men nightly for weeks. The trap was not luring them in, and Patterson recalls feeling hopeless as the lions wreaked havoc on the camps. The locals had long believed the animals to not be lions at all, but spirits of dead ancestors angrily defending their country. Patterson admits that after a while, he started to wonder if perhaps the natives were right, and these were angry spirits here to curse them and the railway. Dozens of men were killed in this space of time. Body parts were being continuously found outside the camps, even the bravest men in the world wouldn't put up with this nightly terrorism, and on the 1st of December, the men had struck work. Patterson writes, When I sent for them, they flocked to my bomber in a body and stated they would not remain at Sabo any longer for anyone or anything. They had come from India on an agreement to work for the government, not to supply food for either lions or the devils. Hundreds of men boarded the next passing train, leaving all their possessions behind. All work on the railway stopped. And for the next few weeks, the men that were brave enough to stay spent all their time lion-proofing the campsite. Shortly before this ultimatum and the workers' strike, Patterson had written to the district officer, a Mr. Whitehead, and requested that he visit Sava to help deal with the war against the lion. Mr. Whitehead wrote back saying yes, and he should be expected by dinner time on December 2nd. The two made plans to have dinner together that night, and be briefed about the situation. Dinner time on December 2nd rolled around, and Mr. Whitehead had not shown up. Assuming his train was simply late, Patterson ate alone. The next morning, Patterson went searching for the remains of any men unlikely to have been visited by the lions, and he ran into a pale and disheveled Mr. Whitehead. Where on earth have you come from? He exclaimed. Why didn't you turn up to dinner last night? A nice reception you give to a fellow when you invite them to dinner, was his only reply. Why? What's up? That infernal lion of yours nearly did me in for last night, said Mr. Whitehead. Nonsense. You must have dreamed it, Patterson cried in astonishment. For an answer, he turned around and showed him his back. That's not much for a dream, is it? Whitehead's clothes were torn up and the lion had mauled his back. Four claw marks dragged from his shoulders to the small of his back. It turns out that Whitehead's train was indeed late, and when he arrived he found the station in complete lockdown. On his way to the camp, he and his companion Abdullah were set upon by one of the lions. Whitehead was mauled, and the lion grabbed Abdullah by the throat and carried him off. He was never seen again. The next day, another ally arrived. The police commissioner had travelled to Sabo with a high-powered rifle ready to assist the hunt. The men had several close encounters with the lion, and at one point it looked like Patterson would shoot one of them dead, but his rifle misfired. After several days, Whitehead and the police commissioner had to depart, and Patterson was left alone yet again. After another close call with one of the lions, a platform was set up and a half-eaten donkey was used as bait. Patterson waited up on the platform all night, waiting for the lion to return for its meal. At one point, he was bumped on the head by an owl that mistook him for a tree branch and he nearly fell. Eventually, one of the lions did return, though it was not the donkey it had come for. It was Patterson. It stalked him for hours, creeping stealthily around the structure, gradually moving closer and closer. Patterson took aim and pulled the trigger. The shot was followed by a massive roar, and Patterson knew his aim had been true. He continued blasting away in the direction of the lion. The remaining workers all called out and rejoiced. At last, one of the man-eaters was dead. The lion's remains were located and brought to the camp. The first man-eater was 3 meters long from nose to tail, and was 1.2 meters tall. It took 8 men to carry it back to camp. The skin was badly damaged from the thorns it had been crawling through. 
Only a few nights passed before the second man-eater made another appearance. When it did, it attacked three goats that were tied together. It grabbed the first goat and ran off, pulling the others with it. The next morning, a hunting party went out and found the remains of the goats. The lion was still eating his meal. When the men approached it, it roared and ran off and the party pursued it until the ground became too rocky and they could follow no longer. They returned to the goats and set up a platform for a gunman to sit in. Patterson was sure that the lion would return for the rest of its meal. The lion did return and was shot twice by a shotgun, but it was still not enough to bring it down and it escaped yet again. 10 days passed and many of the workers began to hope that the animal had died in the bush from its wound. Then the lion was spotted nearby. Patterson writes, We awaited daylight with impatience, and at the first glimmer of dawn, we set out to hunt him down. I took a native tracker with me, so that I was free to keep a good lookout, while Mahina followed immediately behind with a martini carbine. Splashes of blood being plentiful, we were able to get along quickly, and we had not proceeded more than a quarter of a mile through the jungle, when suddenly a fierce warning growl was heard right in front of us. Looking cautiously through the bushes, I could see the man-eater glaring in our direction and showing its tusks in an angry snarl. I at once took careful aim and fired. Instantly he sprang out and made a most determined charge down on us. I fired again and knocked him over, but in a second he was up once more and coming for me as fast as he could in his crippled condition. A third shot had no apparent effect, so I put my hand out for the martini, hoping to stop him with it. To my dismay, however, it was not there. The terror of the sudden charge had proved too much for Mahina, and both he and the carbine were by this time well on their way up a tree. In the circumstances, there was nothing to do but follow suit, which I did without loss of time. Even as it was, I had barely enough time to swing myself up out of his reach before he arrived at the foot of the tree. When the lion found he was too late, he started to limp back into the thicket, but by this time I had seized the carbine from Mahina, and the first shot I fired from it seemed to give him his quietus, for he fell over and lay motionless, rather foolishly. I at once scrambled down from the tree and walked towards him. To my surprise and to little alarm, he jumped up and attempted another charge. This time, however, a martini bullet in the chest and another in his head finished him for good. He dropped in his tracks not five yards away from me and died gamely, biting savagely at a branch which had fallen from the tree. The second lion measured three meters from snout to tail and was 118 centimeters tall. With the man-eater threat eliminated, the workforce returned and the Savo Railway Bridge was completed on the 7th of February, 1899. Although the rails were destroyed by German soldiers during the First World War, the stone foundations were left standing and the bridge was subsequently repaired. The workers, who in earlier months had all but threatened to kill him, presented Patterson with a silver bowl in appreciation for the risks he had undertaken on their behalf, with the following inscription. Sir, we, your overseer, timekeepers, mistaris, and workmen, present you with this bowl as a token of our gratitude to you for your bravery in killing two man-eating lions at great risk to your own life, thereby saving us from the fate of being devoured by these terrible monsters who nightly broke into our tents and took our fellow workers from our side. In presenting you with this bowl, we add all our prayers for your long life, happiness, and prosperity. We shall forever remain, sir, your grateful servants. This was dated at Savo, January 30, 1899. There's not really an exact number for how many people were killed by the lions, but no less than 28 Indians had died, in addition to scores of unfortunate African workers who no official record was kept. After 25 years as Patterson's floor rugs, the lion's skins were sold to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago in 1924 for a sum of $5,000. The skins arrived in the museum in very poor condition. The lions were reconstructed and are now on permanent display along with their skulls. I'll end this story with an excerpt taken from The Spectator from March 3rd, 1900, which had an article entitled The Lions That Stopped the Railway. It was not the sport, but the duty of kings, and was in itself a title to be a ruler of men. 
Theseus, who cleared the roads of beasts and robbers, Hercules, the lion killer, St. George, the dragon slayer, and all the rest of their class owed to this their everlasting fame. From the story of the Savo River we can appreciate their services to man even at this distant time, when the jungle twinkled with hundreds of lamps, as the shouts went from camp to camp that the first line was dead, as the hurrying crowds fell prostrate in the middle of the forest laying their heads on his feet, and the Africans danced savage and ceremonial dances of thanksgiving, Mr. Patterson must have realised in no common way what it was to have been a hero and deliverer in the days when men was not yet undisputed lord of the creation, and might pass at any moment under the savage dominion of the beasts. the Savo Man-Eating Lions, and by the way, I told you I would, the movie uh, that came out based on this story is called The Ghost and the Darkness. It's a film from 1996, and I reckon that would be a good candidate for our next Man-Eater movie. What do you guys reckon? Sounds good. Okay, we're moving on to another story. Uh, this is this one is probably in my top five stories that I've covered because going into it, I knew nothing. I'd never heard of this before. At least with like you know with Tillicum, I'd heard of Tillicum. I'd heard of Taylor Mitchell. I've heard of Timothy Treadwell, um, and I'd heard of this other man in the lines. I had never heard uh, an absolutely like ferocious beast that terrorized uh, a, a small village in northern Japan. Um, the Senkeibetsu brown bear is the episode we're going to be listening to now. This was episode 16 of the podcast. Um, so yeah, the, the Senkeibetsu brown bear, um, this was, I believe, in the 1910s in Japan. This bear terrified people, tricked people, uh, and, and killed lots of people as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a fantastic story. So I hope you enjoy it. This is the Senkeibetsu Brown Bear. Guys, we have a really interesting story today. Um, a, a real classic man-eaters tale, if you will. You know, we've had a few weeks where we've done some um, some interesting stuff, some different stuff. Of course, we talked about, um, you know, elephants attacking people, monkeys attacking people. These are really great stories, but they're not man-eaters per se. You know, they weren't eating people. They were just pushing them off balconies and exploding them with their trunks. Today, we have a classic man-eater tale, a true carnivorous beast, and for the first time ever in man-eater's history, we are traveling to Japan. Um, this is the story of the worst animal attack in uh, J Japanese history, recorded history, I suppose, um, and it really is terrifying. Uh, when I, this time when you listen to the story, I really want you to put yourself in the in the shoes of these people who were affected by this animal attack. Um, and yeah, look, I'm not going to waffle on too much longer because it's a great story. I want to jump into it, so let's do that now, guys. This is the story of the brown bear of Sekibetsu. Our story takes place in a beautiful but remote village in the north of Japan, known as Sakebetsu. Here, the summers are extremely hot and the winters are brutally cold. However, the natural beauty of the mountains makes living in this area very worth it. In the early 20th century, something worse than climate struck the people in the village. Sakebetsu would become the location of the worst animal attack in Japanese history. The carnage resulted in the deaths of seven people and the injury of three others. After coming up early from winter hibernation, the perpetrator, a gigantic brown bear, attacked a number of homes over the course of five days. On the northern Japanese island of Hokkaido, the Usuri subspecies of brown bear can be found. They had previously been discovered on Honshu, the largest island, but were pushed to extinction some 15,000 years ago, at the conclusion of the last glacial period. 
Populations can still be found in China, Russia, and Korea. The Asuri is a huge subspecies of brown bear, with the largest individuals rivaling the size of the Kodiak, the largest brown bear subspecies. Bears have a fearsome reputation amongst the Japanese people as man-eaters. While the Sankebetsu tragedy contributed significantly to the spread of this dread, it is not without its foundation. 141 people were killed and 300 were injured in bear attacks on Hikido in the first half of the 20th century. Since 1962, there have been 86 attacks that have resulted in 33 deaths. When the enormous male brown bear that was subsequently responsible for the deaths reached a farm in Sekibetsu in mid-November 1915, it was the first time it had ever been seen by the villagers. While the bear's sudden appearance shocked the Akita family and scared their horse, the bear eventually left after eating harvested corn. After the bear resurfaced near the property on November 20th, the family's patriarch enlisted the help of his son and two Matagi, specialized winter hunters with bear killing experience. The four men fired upon the bear with rifles when it returned to the farmstead 10 days later, injuring it. Despite following the animal's path to Mount Onishika and noticing multiple bloodstains indicating the animal had been hurt by their shots, they were forced to turn back due to a snowstorm. The men came to a conclusion that the bear would have developed a fear of humans as a result of his injuries and would no longer approach human settlements. A little more than a week later, the men would find out just how wrong they were. The bear broke into the Otter family home in the middle of the morning on December 9th, 1915. While her husband toiled in the fields, a woman named Abe Mayu babysat an infant inside. The bear attacked the couple and bit the baby on the skull, killing it instantly. Mayu was overpowered and carried off into the forest despite her attempts to defend herself by hurling firewood. When her husband returned home, he discovered his wife had vanished and enormous puddles of blood had formed on the floor. He also discovered the mangled remains of the baby. The next morning, a search party of about 30 people was assembled to track down the bear and recover Mayu's remains. The soldiers sighted the animal a little distance from the Otter family farm and fired five rifle bullets at it. Only one bullet found its entire... <clears throat> Only one bullet found its intended target, causing the bear to flee. Mayu's remains were discovered buried in the snow at the base of a fir tree after the men searched the area. Only her head and her legs remained. She had almost entirely been consumed by the bear. Armed townspeople gathered on the altar farm the next night, believing the bear had developed a taste for human flesh and would return. The bear, in fact, did return, causing the villagers to panic. Only one man kept his nerve and fired a shot at the bear in the midst of the chaos, while a troop of about 50 soldiers stationed a few hundred meters away came too late to stop it. Many families had sought safety near Mayuki Yasutoru's residence, which had guards stationed outside. When the guards learned of the bear sighting at the farm, they went on the hunt, leaving only one of their number to defend the women and children who remained in the home. In the dead of the night, the bear blasted its way into the house through a window as Yasutaru's wife, Yayo, led the women in cooking a late dinner. A cooking pot was overturned in the commotion, dousing the flames with the stove. As the bear rampaged inside, an oil lamp was also knocked over and extinguished, throwing the house into complete darkness. Yayo tried to run but was tripped by her tiny child who was grasping at her legs in terror. While they were both assaulted at first, the bear turned its attention to the last surviving guard, allowing Yayo to flee with her children while the man sought in vain to hide behind furniture and was eventually mauled terribly. 
Two more young boys were killed in the incident, while a third was badly injured. Yayo, who was seriously hurt, met the returning guards on the road and informed them that the bear had attacked the house while they were gone. When they returned to the house, the sounds of the bear attacking the occupants were still audible inside the dimly lit house. An early plan to burn the house to the ground was scrapped in the hopes that some of the children within might survive. Instead, the guards were divided into two groups, with ten men stationed at the front door and the rest circling around behind the house. They started yelling and pounding on the front door to drive the bear away. The plan eventually worked, but the waiting shooters had clustered and blocked each other's lines of sight, and some firearms actually misfired. The bear managed to once again escape. One villager had gone to see Yamamoto Hayekichi, an excellent bear hunter, after the initial incident. Yamamoto believed the bear was a man named Kesakaki, who was suspected of mauling at least three people to death in earlier incidents. Yamamoto, however, had fallen on bad times and he'd pawned his guns to pay for alcohol, and he declined to help. The villager who had paid him a visit later returned and told him that his pregnant wife had been killed in the second attack. The following day, a group of men reassembled to attempt to kill the bear once more. The men camped at the front of the Mayuki house that night, but the bear was nowhere to be found. Police in the nearby town of Hoboro received information of the attack on December 12th, three days after the first fatal attack, and dispatched a team of six snipers to track down Kesagake. Yamamoto Haichi was one of them. When the bear failed to appear again and again, the hunting crew was forced to make the difficult decision to use the body of a previous victim to entice it out. Despite locals' protests, particularly from the Ota and Mayuki families, the plan was implemented. However, the bear eluded the guns once again. Patrols began scouting the adjacent woodland after the bear was discovered to have returned to the Otter household and raided their winter supplies, with upwards of 60 armed men involved in the hunt. Guards stationed on a bridge detected movement in the night on December 13th and opened fire after the shadow failed to respond to a challenge. The bear escaped once more, but the next morning they discovered bloodstains down the opposite bank, indicating that the bear had been injured once again. Yamamoto set off to find Kesagaki, accompanied by two other hunters. The seasoned bear hunter tracked down his prey and discovered it resting behind a Japanese oak tree. He got within 20 yards of the bear before killing it with two precise shots, one to the heart and the other to the head. After his rampage came to an end, the bear was discovered to weigh about 750 pounds and stand to nearly 9 feet tall. While most of the injured victims healed, the Mayoki family's youngest son died three years later as a result of his injuries. The lone guard who had been mauled in the second incident returned to work but drowned the following spring after falling into a river. Many peasants abandoned Sakabetsu. At the age of seven, Kawa Harayoshi, the village mayor's son, grew up to become a famous bear hunter. He retired at the age of 62 with 102 confirmed bear kills after swearing to kill 10 bears for every one of the victims. In 1980, his son successfully hunted and killed a 1,100 pound bear. Today, a shrine with a replica of the original home and a statue of Kesagaki exists near the site of the first attack. And that was the Senkebetsu brown bear attack. Uh, God, such an interesting story. I had no. This is one of those ones that I had no knowledge of before sitting down to research it. Um, what a horrifying way to go to be in a house with a bunch of women and children and a bear blasts through the window, and uh, 
the lights go out and you're just stuck in this cabin, essentially, uh, with screaming people all around you and a bear just rampaging and mauling, you know? Another in another interesting, um, excuse me, another interesting thing that I noticed about this story is that a lot of other times with man-eating stories, particularly with big cats, but also with bears, um, is after the, the animal is hunted down, there is there are theories posited about why um, why this happened. Uh, a lot of times it's uh, an injury, like a, an injury. So like uh, with the chomp white tiger, I always go back to it, but the chomp white tiger had a broken canine tooth, which made it impossible for it to hunt regular prey. Um, Gustav, the crocodile, uh, you know, apparently he's been shot so many times that he's too injured to attack normal prey. So he goes after weaker things like humans. Um, the Sekibetsu brown bear, there's no such theory, at least I haven't heard one. Um, it seemed to be in perfect health. I mean, it's, it, it weighed 750 pounds and was nearly uh, 9 feet tall. It's a massive bear, um, and it seemed to be quite healthy. It would have to be quite healthy to keep escaping from uh, from these ambushes and taking all this gunfire. Um, yeah, the, the only, like, theory sort of mentioned in this story is Yamamoto, uh, who believed the bear was named Kesagake and was, you know, a previous bear. And I think that he mentioned that he was like, he believed the bear to be like the reincarnated uh, spirit of a man in the area as well. Uh, the translation, I think, in that part might have been a little bit lost, but that's kind of how I how I read that, is that he believed the bear was literally the spirit of a man who would come back to uh, take revenge on the villages of Sakebetsu. I don't know what they did wrong. Um, but anyway, that, that was the story. I hope you uh, well, not enjoyed it, but you know, I hope you learned a lot. Um, as I've said many times, I think bears are the, one of the least fun ways to go. They fully will tear you apart, um, without killing you. That, that poor woman, um, who, who was just like left with her head and legs. Like we learned this in the, um, God, what was it? There was the, uh, the Treadwell story, the, the, um, yeah, the Treadwell story. The sec I think it was the second or third episode we did. Bears don't kill you quickly, man. They, like, take their time. Um, and there, there's another story, which we'll probably touch on another time. Uh, this is Russian woman who... There's actually, like, there's audio. Uh, there's audio of her phoning her mom uh, as a bear is eating her alive. And she's talking to her mom saying, there is a bear, it's eating me alive, it hurts so much, please help. And she, the phone call goes on for minutes. It's it's harrowing and it's awful. So bears are not kind animals uh, when they do attack. Uh, but you know, they, yeah, they've evolved to be that way, man. They're like, they're powerful as hell. I'm starting to sound like Joe Rogan frothing over bears and that's the last thing uh, any of us need. So let's move on quickly to our newest segment, the scratch of the day. No interstitial there. Maybe we'll make one. I don't know. What do you think? We'll go like scratch of the day and they'll be like, Row, and then sh sh scratch noises. I don't know. If you want to make one, make it and send it to me. Knock and run podcast. Not, oh my God. I'm getting mixed up with my podcasts. Send it to me, maneaterspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we are talking about animal tax, animal confrontation in the news this week. Our first story, the, the headline is Fox News. That's going to be a pun. Wait for it. Capitol Police catch mammal accused of attacking congressman. Here's the story. U.S. Capitol Police have apprehended an aggressive suspect accused of attacking a congressman and perhaps others. The alleged assailant? An unusually bold fox. Earlier in the day, police had warned of fox encounters in the area and said they were working to trap and relocate the animal. 
For your safety, please do not approach any foxes, police tweeted. A folks... A spokesperson for the Capitol Police told NPR there had been reports of several bites and that a fox had been spotted on Monday around the Senate office buildings. This spokesperson said foxes had been spotted before, but described the aggressive behavior as unusual. Punchball News later identified at least one of the bitten individuals as Army Bearer, a Democratic congressman from California. I expect to get attacked if I go on Fox News. I don't expect to get attacked by a fox, Bearer told Punchball News. Good joke there. Well done, congressman. Bera, oh, am I bleeding? <laughs> I think I'm bleeding. <laughs> How did that happen? Oh no. Sorry to interrupt the news story. I got up to plug the computer into a charger and I, I tripped over my bed and I'm bleeding. That's okay. It's not as bad as being eaten by a bear or attacked by a fox. Speaking of, Bera, who described the fox attack as unprovoked, told Punchball News that the attack had occurred on Monday night. I didn't see it, and all of a sudden I felt something lunge at the back of my leg, the congressman said. I jumped, and I got my umbrella. The fox, meanwhile, appears to have acquired its own publicity team. A Twitter account, at the Capital Fox, tells the animal side of the story, and has released an official statement. The official statement is as follows. Today, I was forcibly removed from my den by very scary and mean individuals. I'm innocent of the crimes in question. This will not be the end. That is threatening and ominous. I am a work in progress, the statement concluded, echoing the words of a film star recently embroiled in a controversy of his own. Wow, well, there you go. I wonder if the fox's wife has alopecia. Anyway, a reporter for Politico, Zimina, oh, I can't pronounce that name, uh, Zimina Bostillo, also tweeted that she had been bitten. That feeling when you get bit by a fox leaving the capital, because that's of course something I expect in the middle of DC, she tweeted. On Tuesday evening, Berra tweeted to report that he was healthy and back at work after the encounter. Joking aside, animal bites are extremely serious. In the case of an encounter, please speak with a physician immediately, he tweeted, including a link to the CDC's website. Hey, that's really responsible of Berra to do. Um, yeah, great. Good. Bitten by fox. I'm still bleeding. Uh, yes, of course, if you are bitten by any wild animal, of course, contact your local health department or go to the hospital. It's up to you. Um... I've never been bitten by a fox, but I did get close enough to pat one when I was little. They lived near my house. They, we were like next to bushland. And I loved the foxes and I wanted to keep the fox as a pet. But my parents said that we weren't allowed to because they ate all the birds. Um, and then my birds did go missing. So, yeah. let's. I'm not going to read too much into that because I might get sad. Um, speaking of sad, this next story is not as fun as the, as the Fox News one. Maybe I should have done this the other way around to end on a happier note. But... It's too late now. Um, this headline says, uh, Mum mauled by Pitbulls wakes up from coma to, finds her, to find her arms amputated. So if that's, you know, not enough to give you an idea of what this story is going to be like, uh, and maybe you want to, you know, skip forward a couple, you know, 45 seconds, uh, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe that's what you should do. A South Carolina mum, and I do know we have some uh, listeners in South Carolina. So if you're listening and uh, you're around that area, I'd love to hear if you heard this in the news in your area a south carolina mum who had both of her arms amputated after being savagely mauled by three pit bulls was so upset by her condition when she woke up from a coma the doctors decided to put her under sedation again according to her sister kyleen waltman 38 years old was critically injured when she was attacked by the dogs on a sidewalk in honia path northwest of columbia on march 21st 
A man who saw Waltman being mauled was eventually able to scare the animals off by firing his gun into the air. I'm going to pause there and just note how American that is, that he just had a gun. That's, that's odd to me. Maybe it's not odd to you. Unpause. Her sister, Amy Wyan, uh, said that Waltman had also lost part of her colon and may have had and sorry, and may have to have a section of her esophagus removed. Holy shit, that's awful. In an update on GoFundMe, Wyan described the harrowing pro uh, moment her sister woke up from a coma. Kyleen had been fully woken up and the doctors told her about her arms, but it caused a great deal of anxiety, so they sedated her, she wrote. Her blood pressure is still very high and she's running a fever of 102 degrees. Her oxygen levels keep falling, so she's back on the ventilator. Mama says it's like she's giving up. Before you go assuming, uh, as we, sorry, before you'll go assuming we as her family are not giving up, Wayne wrote. The Lord has brought her this far for a reason. Her story is not done. Now they have took everything uh, on the, now they have took off everything on the arms now that she cannot have the regular prosthetics. Okay. Uh, so here we are trying to figure out how to keep her from thinking negative thoughts about her life. The sibling continued. Wow, that means that they've uh, they've amputated everything up to the shoulder. Um, you can't have a prosthetic if there's nothing for the prosthetic to go on. Um, which means that, that the, the attack must have been so brutal. Um, let's keep reading. Uh, oh my gosh, okay. Uh, let's keep reading. Uh, I understand that for 38 years she's had arms and now she doesn't. And now she's thinking... And now she's thinking, uh, I understand that for 38 years she's had arms and now she doesn't. How she's thinking. She's still fighting. Prayers are working and slowly she's healing. We just have to wait and allow God and uh, time to do their thing, she added. The fundraiser raised over $170,000 as of Tuesday morning. The dog's owner, Justin Miner, has been charged with the three misdemeanor counts of owning a dangerous animal that attacked and injured a human, rabies control violation, and a dangerous animal not permitted beyond premises unless restrained, the state reported. He has been released on $15,000 bounty. Bounty. Bond. I'm sorry. That's a different thing. Bond. Uh, if it was a bounty, this is... Ah, uh, I'm really... There's a dog the bounty hunter joke in there somewhere, but I'm not going to make it. Um, the owning of a dangerous animal charge carries a penalty of at least $5,000 or a sentence of five years behind bars. It could have been prevented, Wayne said, if the dogs were locked up or if the dogs were chained up or if they were never there to begin with, this would not have happened. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, the dogs were seized by Abbeville County Animal Control in the wake of the attack. It was unclear how the dogs ended up on the street. Signs that read, beware of the dog can be seen on Miner's property, according to local media. Yeah, that's, oh shit, that's awful. I have a friend who um, was attacked by a dog when he was little and thankfully was not injured too terribly, but it left just lasting trauma on him. Um, and we used to think it was funny. Like, no, okay, let me finish. We used to think when, you know, there would be a dog at a party, a little yappy dog, he would be terrified. We thought it was funny. We didn't understand what that trauma was like. Um, and he's recently, uh, I think he has a girlfriend now and I think she has a dog and, uh, you know, he must be taking steps to, I saw a photo of them walking the dog, so that must be improving. But yeah, um, he's a really good guy if you know him, uh, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah, so two News stories, that was the scratch of the day, uh, a fox attacked a congressman, and a woman lost her arms. So, yeah, I guess you could say diverse emotions happening right now. Did I not tell you that was a fantastic story? Mind-blowing. Um, very terrifying, very sad for the people that died, but, I mean, and not to be, you know, not to be cruel, but very good for us, for, for a guy that's, you know, 
making a podcast about man-eating animals. Uh, hey, whatever. You know, there is a conversation to be had about if true crime is profiteering off the pain and suffering of others. Uh, and, you know, uh, <laughs> maybe it is. I'm not profiting, I'll tell you that much. So maybe, you know, <laughs> can I be profiting off the pain and suffering of others if I don't make any money? Speaking of, we do have a Patreon. Please uh, do that. Anyway, uh, another story. How about another story before I put my foot in it even more? Let's go back a little bit. We just did episode, I think, 16. Let's talk about episode 14. Um, This was an episode I was really keen for because I hadn't done a sort of themed episode yet. We'd only ever tackled individual animals. But what we're going to listen to now is episode 14. It's called Monkey Madness. And it's actually a, a batch of stories about people who were killed either directly or indirectly uh, by monkeys, which are some of my favorite animals. Very cute. Uh, this is this episode is actually called Monkey Madness, aka the time the king of Greece got killed by a monkey. Um, yeah, so obviously this is a bit of a historical episode. The majority of this episode is about uh, the yeah the time a monkey killed the king of Greece, uh, which is which is pretty wild and had some quite important historical ramifications. So listen to that, and there's also a couple other stories in here about people dying from monkey attacks. So there you go. Have a listen to Monkey Madness. Welcome back to the show. <laughs> Uh, today, you know, we're talking about a really interesting story today. One of the things I really like about this podcast and about this topic, animal attacks, is every now and again you get a story that crosses over into the mainstream global history. Um, you know, it happened with the sinking of the USS Indianapolis and those shark attacks. Obviously, that was such a huge maritime disaster. Um, and so those two topics sort of cross over. It happened with Harambe when Donald Trump sort of <laughs> weighed into that. It happens more than you think. And today we're talking about, well, we're actually talking about a couple stories. We have an entree and a main course. The main course um, is, it's a very bizarre story. It's the only, as far as I can tell, the only recorded case of a head of state of a global, of a country um, dying from a monkey attack. Uh, so we're going to talk monkey tax a day. I, I don't know what this episode's going to be called, um, if we're going to call it M- Monkey Madness, or I'm going to call it The Time a Monkey Killed the King of Greece. I, I haven't really decided. Um, but oh, ooh, before we jump in, I just really qu- quickly want to say, and I don't want to do this every episode because it does seem self-indulgent, but I want to thank the people who messaged me um, talking about the last episode um, with the elephants uh, and just sort of share my appreciation to those for listening and sharing their thoughts. I did have a couple people um, ask me why I didn't talk about Topsy the Elephant, which is arguably a more famous um, example of an elephant fatality um, than than Tyke was, probably on par with Mary. Um, for those of you who don't know, Ta- uh, Topsy was this elephant that was electrocuted to death. It was kind of like, <laughs> they basically put it to death by the Edison Electric Company. And the part of the story that's really interesting is that there's a big misconception, and you might think it too, that Thomas Edison electrocuted this elephant to death, when in reality, um, Thomas Edison had nothing to do with the Edison Electrical Company at that point in time. I believe he had been forced out or something like that. So that's a really interesting story. And it's absolutely one that we will cover at a later date. Um, But those of you asking for me to cover it soon, I think that I don't want to do two elephant stories too close to each other. I'm trying to space these out. You'll never see me do uh, two of the same animal back to back. So 
Maybe wait for season two for that one, but I am interested. Uh, also, if you are interested in giving me your feedback about what animal stories you like to do, maybe giving me a suggestion for one that I might not have heard, um, you can do that. We do have an Instagram, which is at Podcast. I think. Um, just search Pod something. It'll come up. Um, we also have a email now, um, Podcast at gmail.com. So you can send through any suggestions for stories or any feedback, any corrections. Um, you know, I've had a couple of people... <laughs> point out some inconsistencies or mistakes that I've made and I love that I'm never gonna get offended because I'm not perfect and I'm not a biologist I'm just an actor with a weird specific interest in this topic so uh, please feel free to do that one day I'm sure we'll have to do a, a big episode of corrections but but not today finally before we jump into the story I try to keep these episodes evergreen I don't I, I don't want to put in too many um, you know pop culture references and stuff that make the episodes dated I want people to listen to these for years to come but we have to talk about it. Dude, Will Smith punched Chris Rock in the face today. And that, and I can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> it's the best thing that's ever happened. I like, I like them both. But wow, it's cool. And I probably shouldn't be talking about this on the, on the podcast when it has nothing to do with animals. But there's surely got to be a way to like, you know, work it into the topic. And oh, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> you know how we do this, right? Because this punch in the face, right? This was human-animal conflict. It was a man-eater's story. Because Will Smith punched Marty the Zebra in the face from Madagascar. You guys remember Madagascar, right? It's all of our favorite movie. We collectively decided, the man-eater nation decided that Madagascar <laughs> was our favorite movie. Uh, closely followed by Puss in Boots. <laughs> oh, anyway... Just wanted to <laughs> get that off my chest. Let's jump into it. Like I said before, entree and then main course. So here we are. Um, let's just jump into Monkey Madness. <laughs> before we get into the actual events that transpired, I want to talk a little bit about monkeys. Um, because when you picture a monkey like me, you're probably thinking of this cute little creature they've got little hands and they eat peanuts and stuff and they're very cute and that's correct they are very cute i think monkeys are adorable i wish i was one i wish i had one um however monkeys are incredibly problematic in certain parts of the world and i don't mean that in the way that they like tweet anti-semitism or alt-right propaganda i mean that they cause a lot of issues uh particularly in southeast asia in places like india and china um they're basically a kind of pest uh and the, the most common form of injury with uh, with monkeys is a monkey bite. So here's just a little bit of information about monkey bites and why they're dangerous and why if you are traveling in those areas um, or you're interacting with monkeys at all, it's really important that you manage that. Don't let them climb all over you and definitely don't let them bite you because, well, I'll get into it. So monkey bites. Monkey bites are the second most common form of animal bite in India after dogs. Monkey bites are responsible for 2 to 21% of all animal bite injuries in that country. Monkey bites are a significant cause of concern for travelers. The treatment is determined by a variety of conditions, including whether or not rabies has been suspected. Managing these bites entails the following. Cleaning and caring for wounds, antibiotics as a preventative measure, treatment for rabies after a bite, and treatment for tetanus after a bite. A monkey bite can be serious business. They can cause devastating diseases. Some Asian monkey species are carriers of the simian herpes B virus. This virus was initially discovered after an investigator was bitten by a seemingly healthy monkey. 
This researcher died of encephalitis not long after receiving the bite. With other simian-acquired infections of this virus, fatality rates as high as 80% have been recorded. Currently, transmission of the virus by monkey bite almost always occurs as a result of biomedical research personnel's occupational exposure. Monkey bite infections causes have been described as hephetic skin lesions and sensory abnormalities near the exposure site, fever and non-specific flu, myalgias and headaches, exhaustion and gradual neurological impairment including dyspnea are all symptoms of the infection. The conclusion is always fatal if the central nervous system has been involved. However, with the widespread use of antiviral medicine for both prevention and treatment, instances are now uncommon and deaths are even more uncommon. However, they do still occur. Education and traveler warnings are used to prevent the spread of the disease. Surveillance for the presence of rabies in monkey populations is also part of the prevention strategy. The impact of monkey bites is not well understood due to a lack of research. Between 1960 and 2013, 159 human rabies infections were reported as a result of monkey bites. While death by an infection is the most common cause of death from an adverse interaction with monkeys, it is certainly not the only thing that can go wrong. This is evidenced by our first story today, the death of the mayor of Delhi. Surinder Singh Bajwa was born in 1955 and was the deputy mayor of Delhi. He served as a member of the Bharatiya Janata Party and was elected councillor of the Anrad Vihar ward in 2007. On October 20th, 2007, at around 7am, Bajwa was attacked by a group of rhesus macaques at his home while he was enjoying morning tea and reading a newspaper. The monkeys approached and aggressively attacked Bajwa. His family reported the attempt to fight the monkeys off, but they were unusually savage. Bajwa eventually fell from a first floor balcony and suffered serious spine and head trauma. One day later, he succumbed to these injuries and passed away at the Indra Pasha Apollo Hospital. This was not the first incident involving aggressive monkeys in the area. The city has long struggled to counter its plague of monkeys which invade government complexes and temples, snatch food and scare passers-by. The High Court ordered the city to find an answer to the problem in 2006, but they failed to come up with any long-term solutions. Locals said that monkeys are a big problem in this area, and despite hiring hunters, the problem still persists. All of us have been facing this problem for the past several years, said Sheta Jane, Bajwa's neighbour. Bajwa was survived by his wife Nimi and his two sons. His eldest son Deepak is a Mumbai-based actor while the youngest one returned from the US a few months after pursuing higher studies. So that was our entree, and now we're moving on to the main event, the main course, that time a monkey killed the King of Greece and literally changed world history. And that is not hyperbole. Um, it, it's absolutely factual and accurate. So before we get into this story, it's important to get some historical context. So. Alexander of Greece was the king of Greece from the 11th of June 1917 until his death three years later in 1920. He was the second son of Constantine I and he was born in the palace of Tatio on the outskirts of Athens. The political landscape in Greece at this time is complex but here are some highlights that are important to know. Number one. Constantine I officially was neutral in World War I, however, he was openly friendly with Germany. He was actually known as a bit of a Germanophile after his military training in Prussia. In addition to this, his brother-in-law was actually Kaiser Wilhelm II. Number two, his pro-German attitude prompted a split between the royal family and the Greek government. Prime Minister Eleftherios Venizelos, and I 
do not think I pronounced that correctly, but I have to move on, wanted to support the powers of France, Britain, and Russia, also known as the Entente Powers, in hopes of incorporating parts of the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans into the Greek territory. With the support from the Entente, the Prime Minister formed the parallel government to that of the King in 1916. During World War I, Alexander succeeded his father Constantine I after he and his firstborn son George were exiled by the followers of Prime Minister Venizelos. Alexander had little to no political experience and was effectively made a powerless figurehead who was essentially imprisoned in his own palace. Regardless of his status as a puppet, King Alexander supported Greek troops during the war against the Ottoman Empire. During his reign, the Greek territory grew considerably following victory in World War I and the preliminary stages of the Greco-Turkish War between 1919 and 1922. Alexander controversially married a commoner named Aspasia Manos in 1919, provoking a major scandal that forced the couple to leave Greece for several months. Soon after returning to Greece with his wife, Alexander was killed, and this is where the monkey madness begins. On the 2nd of October 1920, Alexander was walking through the grounds of the Tatoy estate. A domesticated Barbary macaque belonging to one of the stewards of the palace's grapevines attacked the king's German shepherd, a dog named Fritz. Isn't that cute? Alexander attempted to separate the two animals. As he did, another monkey attacked Alexander and bit him deeply on the legs and torso. After a struggle, servants arrived and chased away the monkeys. The king's wounds were promptly cleaned and dressed, but critically, they were not cauterized. The king did not consider the incident serious and asked the servants to keep quiet about the attack. That night, the king suffered a severe fever and it was clear that his wounds had become infected. Doctors considered amputating his legs, but none wished to take on the responsibility of such a drastic action themselves. On the 19th of October, he suffered hallucinations and called out for his mother. The Greek government refused to allow her to re-enter the country from her exile in Switzerland. Instead, Olga, Alexander's grandmother, was allowed to return alone to Athens and tend to the king. She was, however, delayed by treacherous seas, and by the time she arrived, Alexander had already died of sepsis 12 hours earlier, at 4pm on the 25th of October, 1920. He was 27 years old. The other members of his family, including his father Constantine and his brother George, were notified of his death by telegram that evening. His body was laid in state at Athens Cathedral until his funeral was held on October 29th. Again, the Greek government did not allow any members of the royal family to return to Greece for the funeral. Queen Olga was the only member who attended. Foreign leaders from Serbia, Russia, Britain and France also attended the funeral. After the service, Alexander's body was buried in the grounds of the Palace of Tatoi, the very same place he was born. The Greek government and even the Greek royal family never really viewed Alexander's rule as fully legitimate. While other monarchs are given the inscription, King of the Hellenes, Prince of Denmark, Alexander's reads Alexander, son of the King of the Hellenes, Prince of Denmark. According to Alexander's favourite sister, Queen Helen of Romania, this feeling of illegitimacy was also shared by Alexander himself. Alexander's death created issues regarding the throne succession and the nature of the Greek government. The king's descendants were not in the line of succession due to an illegitimate marriage. The Hellenic parliament urged that Constantine I and Crown Prince George be barred from the succession, but that the monarchy be preserved by voting in another member of the royal family as the new sovereign. A Greek minister in Bern, acting on behalf of the Greek authorities, offered the kingdom to Alexander's younger brother Prince Paul on October 29, 1920. 
Paul, on the other hand, refused to be king while his father and older brother were still alive, claiming that none of them had relinquished their claims to the kingdom and that he was not the rightful heir. The throne remained empty and the legislative elections of 1920 devolved into a brawl between the followers of ex-King Constantine and the supporters of the Prime Minister, who wanted republicanism. With the war in Turkey dragging on, the monarchists eventually triumphed. Demetrius Rallus was elected as the new Prime Minister. Venizalos, who had lost his own parliamentary seat, chose to flee Greece in exile. Rallus appointed Queen Olga as Queen Regent until Constantine's arrival. Greece ended up losing the Greco-Turkish War, with massive military and civilian fatalities under the restored rule of King Constantine I. During King Constantine's reign, the territory gained on the Turkish mainland was lost. Alexander's death from monkey bites during an election campaign destabled the Venezuelos dictatorship, and the loss of allied assistance that followed led to Greece's territorial ambitions failing. In addition to this, the change in the country's leadership is credited as a major reason for the massive loss of civilian and military lives. Winston Churchill once said, It is perhaps no exaggeration to remark that a quarter of a million people died of this monkey's bite. Okay, so I bet you didn't realise that uh, a monkey inadvertently caused the death of a quarter million people, but you do now, thanks to me. And also Wikipedia and a couple other sources, but mainly Wikipedia. Um, I find this story so interesting, and maybe you don't... I don't know, we'll see how people like this, uh, you know, the history of this episode. It was a little bit light on the animals, I understand that, but... Look, when a monkey kills the King of France in 1920, you, you gotta talk about it. I mean, you can't not. I was surprised at how, you know, deep the rabbit hole of, <laughs> of history was. Last night I was reading about this story and I was just like, Jesus Christ, I've been reading about Greek politics and the Turkish-Greco war for about three hours. And it didn't really matter <laughs> because I didn't really touch on it too much. Uh, but yeah, there you go. That was Monkey Madness, aka the time a monkey killed the king of Greece and led to the death of 250 million people. Like I said, lots of monkey madness there. I don't know what you're expecting. I also, uh, when we did the uh, the list of fatal bear attacks in North America a while ago, we did a series. One of the people was Grizzly Adams, and uh, we learned that Grizzly Adams was bit on the hair, uh, bit on the head by a bear, um, which caused like a coin shaped hole in his skull forever. And he he didn't die from that. What he died from was when his pet monkey bit his actual brain through the hole. So we're going to talk about that as well. But I think since we've just talked about monkeys, let's um let's maybe talk about that as well. Okay. Just like in the last part of the, uh, you know, 2021-22 uh, recap, we talked about the mystery of the Beast of Gévaudan, an animal that we're not quite sure what it was. Staying in theme with that, we're going to talk about the Malaway Terror Beast. So this was a similar story to the Beast of Gévaudan. Um, the Malaway Terror Beast, this is episode 18 of the podcast. Malaway Terror Beast was about uh, an unknown assailant, an unknown animal, although very likely some sort of hyena or hyena hybrid um, that attacked and killed people in Africa, caused a scare. Uh, thousands of people had to evacuate the area because of this unknown creature. Um, so let's talk about that. Let's listen to the Malaway Terror Beast. 
Um, we have a really exciting episode today called The Beast, uh, the Malloway Terror Beast, um, similar to The Beast of Jevordan. It's kind of like a, a semi-cryptid, uh, yeah, like it's, it's almost a cryptid, but it's not quite a cryptid. Um, we'll probably be talking a bit more about cryptids as the podcast progresses, because the more I look into these animals that aren't properly identified, the more interesting cryptid stories pop up. So, uh, if you're interested in those, stay tuned. Before we get into it, just a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, last week I was saying it would be great if we could hit 3,000 uh, streams before the end of the week and we did that congratulations thank you so much we hit 3,000 streams which for a podcast it's been going for years and years and years that's nothing that's not much at all but for this little show that I'm currently recording in my bedroom if you could see the setup by the way you would be shocked that it had 3,000 streams I'm currently sitting at my desk in my little weird office I have a microphone stand with a broomstick stuck through it and a towel draped over it that's what I'm using for soundproofing this is an absolute clusterfuck let's just call it that uh but the story is interesting and that's what's keeping you glued to it so i won't keep waffling on um the Malawi Terror Beast is a really interesting story that comes out of Africa, Central Africa, I believe. Um, it's about a animal that we think we have identified, similar to the Beast of Jevodan. We think we know what it is, but there is no actual proof and no evidence that that is confirmed. And there are many people and many reports that dispute the claims. So, officially, this beast is a hyena, but uh, people who have seen it throw uh, doubt onto that aspersion. So. We're going to jump straight into this story. Uh, hold on to your hats. Hold on to your penises, ladies. This is the Malloway Terror Beast. The Malloway Terror Beast refers to a rabid animal, most likely some form of hyena, that killed at least three people and badly injured at least 16 more in 2003 in the small African nation of Malloway. Malloway officially known as the Republic of Malawi, is a landlocked country in southeastern Africa that was formerly known as Nisaland. It is bordered by Zambia to the west, Tanzania to the north and northeast, and Mozambique to the east, south and southwest. It has an estimated population of about 19.5 million people and its largest city is its capital, Lilongwe. The country is nicknamed the Warm Heart of Africa because of the friendliness of its people. In 2003, the friendly people of Malawi came under attack by a horrific monster. While officially the beast was identified as a hyena, both eyewitness accounts and expert analysis have thrown that theory into question. It is thought that the Malawi terror beast attacks began in the Dawa district in early March 2003. While Dawa is only around 60 miles from the capital city of Lilongwe, many areas are sparsely populated and the area is quite mountainous. Villagers fleeing their homes sought safety at a community centre in district headquarters where parks and wildlife officials first learned of the attacks. More than 4,000 people fled four mountain settlements when all was said and done. These refugees brought tales of a huge, dangerous animal actively hunting people in the area. The creature had killed two elderly ladies and a youngster, crushing their skulls and consuming their intestines and genitals in each case. Those who were fortunate enough to escape the attacks suffered horrible disfigurements which were studied by local specialists in an attempt to identify the beast. 
At least one woman's face had been completely ripped off, and two more victims had been rendered blind. Several victims lost both their legs and hands, while two others lost both their ears and eyes. The beast ripped the nose and mouth off of one very unlucky woman. This horrible method of selective mutilation is more akin to cruel human murders than those committed by mad animals. The following is a BBC News article published on March 5th, 2003. At least three people have been killed and 16 others severely injured by a mysterious wild beast running wild in a mountainous region in Malloway. The rampaging beast in Dower District, some 100 kilometers from the capital Lilongwe, has sent at least 4,000 people fleeing four villages to seek refuge at a community hall at the district headquarters. Parks and Wildlife Officer Leonard Sifu said his department believed the mysterious beast could be a rabid hyena, but he said it was strange for a hyena to terrorize whole villages without being cornered. He said his department was examining the maimed people to establish what the animal could be. Dr. Matthias Joshua, the Dower District Health Officer, told me on Wednesday afternoon that two old women and a three-year-old baby died when the beast crushed their skulls and ate their intestines and private parts. All efforts to shoot and kill the animals so far have failed. Dr. Joshua said that the 16 victims admitted to the hospital following the latest attacks sustained various appalling injuries with some of them completely maimed and disfigured. He said that some had lost both legs and hands while two have lost both ears and eyes to the beast. One woman lost her mouth and nose. Dower District Commissioner Charles Kelambe said that the district administration is currently feeding the homeless people, but more researchers are needed as the rural district is unable to cope with the unexpected number of displaced. In August last year, a mystery beast killed five people and maimed over 20 others before game rangers and para paramilitary police managed to gun it down. Parks and wildlife officials identified this slain beast as a rabbit hyena, but residents disputed this, saying hyenas normally have shorter hind limbs. Residents who came up close to the current beast, like 30-year-old Morgan Amoni, currently at the Longway Central Hospital looking after his father, and was one of the two victims referred to by the hospital, believes that the, the beast is not natural. He said he believes it is the same beast that was shot dead last year, and has resurrected to exact his revenge on the people. As you just heard, an aggressive unidentified animal terrorized the region for the second time in less than a year, with attacks the previous August resulting in 5 deaths and 20 maimings. The animal was eventually slain by a combination of patrol game rangers and paramilitary police on the day. While officials classified it as a hyena, many witnesses argued that it lacked the underdeveloped back legs that give spotted hyenas their distinctive movement and slanting back. The nature of these attacks, according to some people, did not resemble those of a predator because the victims were often horribly maimed but left alive. Instead, they believed the attacks showed a level of premeditated malice. Many of the locals returned home under armed escort a week after evacuating their houses. The animal responsible for the attacks was never found despite a thorough search by park rangers aided by police officers and the military. Park officers concluded that in 2003 the attacks were most likely the work of hyena after an inquiry. However, the animal was never captured or killed in this case, and animal specialists have questioned whether a lone hyena could attack entire settlements of people. 
Those who saw the animal dismiss claims it was a hyena due to its large hind legs. Many local residents believe that the unknown animal is the soul of a similar beast that was killed a year before, after it slayed five people, and that it has somehow returned to exact revenge upon those who claimed its life. Some say that the Malawi terror beast could have links to another cryptid from Africa known as the Nandi Bear. We will cover this creature on a future episode. To this day, no one knows what the beast was, where it went, or if it's still out there, waiting to attack once again. And that was the Malawi Terror Beast, a, a shorter story than we might be used to, but there actually isn't that much information out there about that. That BBC News article that we read is the primary source, really, at, at this point. It's uh, been nine years, how many years would it have been? 19 years? Yeah, it's been 19 years since these attack ha attacks happened, uh, and there was not a lot of reporting about it. I believe that, you know, in that area of Africa, we don't hear a lot of news from that area, so that BBC News report is kind of the best information we have. Um, what makes this story quite interesting is the, uh, the possibility that this is a cryptid. It is, it is not an officially identified, well, I guess it is an officially identified animal, but the amount of doubts thrown on that uh, assumption kind of bring the whole claim in, into, into question. Um, uh, there are a lot of cryptid, uh, supernatural cryptid uh, enthusiasts who really like this story. Um, in fact, there, are, there is a cryptid wiki like a Wikipedia for cryptids, uh, that has more information about the Malawi terror beast than the actual Wikipedia article has. Um, they draw a lot of, uh, th there's a lot of speculation, I guess, as to what this is. One, one website claimed that the, um, Malawi terror beast, re uh, resembled, I can't remember the name of the beast, like a hyena-like beast from World of Warcraft. Um, they say that that's what it looked like. It, like, obviously that's not what it is. It can't be a beast from World of Warcraft because that's an, a fictional beast um, that was invented for a video game. Um, you know, other theories are that this hyena could have crossbred with some kind of animal, like the Beast of Gévaudan. It's likely that that was a wolf crossed with a dog or uh, something like that. Similarly, this could be a hyena crossed with some sort of domesticated or undomesticated wild dog, potentially. Um, we just won't know. Um, the likelihood of this animal still being out there is low, um, and if we haven't found it yet, we probably will never find it. Um, another possibility is that it is a spotted hyena with some sort of mutation that allowed its, uh, that, that grew its hind legs larger than would normally occur with a hyena. Um, but it is quite a scary story. It's insane that a single animal could evacuate 4,000 residents from villages. That, if you think about that for a second, that is insane. Imagine if your entire neighborhood had to leave their homes because a coyote or a dog was attacking people and biting their genitals off. Uh, now that I say the genital thing, it actually makes a lot of sense. I would definitely evacuate. There's not a chance I would be hanging around. Um, yeah, the Malaway Terror Beast, uh, I'd really, I like these stories where there's a little bit of mystery involved. Um, it does make this feel a bit more like a true crime, uh, story, as well as the horrific details of what happened. People losing their faces and their penises and, uh, their hands. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the Trevor story, or Trevor, the Travis story. People losing their hands and how he just ripped the hands off. Um, whatever this animal was, it was clearly pissed off, um, there is, uh, the story never even mentions what the, uh, apart from the, you know, the theory that it's getting revenge, which is not a likely, <laughs> a likely motive. Uh, we've talked in the past about how, like, 
injured animals often prey on humans uh, to, um, what is it, to like, because they are, they're unable to hunt their regular food source. Um, and there have been other stories, like what was the story we, we talked about last week? The coyotes, potentially that they were disturbed, they had kids, or uh, they had just been uh, raised to not fear humans um, and to view them as a potential aggressor or food source. There's no theory about that with this story. We don't know uh, why this potential hyena did it uh it just didn't people died many were injured and four thousand people had to evacuate their homes so it's not a small deal uh at all it's it would be it would be wrong to say that this is a a, a blip you know that this wasn't a big deal this is a huge deal when people die and people get attacked and people are forced to leave their homes uh, it's a huge deal especially when it is caused by uh something as seemingly innocuous as a single animal uh we're gonna move on now to the next segment, which of course is the scratch of the day. Um, our first story uh, is about a wild bear attack, a sloth bear in fact. So if you go back and listen to the sloth bear of Mysore episode, um, it might give you a little bit more context about these animals. So the headline here is, two farmers killed, one injured in wild bear attack in Jakarta. I am, it's in India, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing the name correctly. Um, this article, by the way, is clearly written in Hindi or uh, I guess, in, yeah, Hindi uh, and has been translated automatically into English. So I, I'm just reading the English translation, but I think it was like one of those auto things. And I don't think that the journalist actually checked the English pronunciation. So, or the English uh, translation. So let me just do my best. If there's anything incorrect, it's not my fault. This was published on the 22nd of April, 2022. Two farmers were killed and one sustained grievous injuries when a sloth bear attacked them in Jakan Gulma district on Thursday, police say. The three members belonging to a family were engaged in plowing their paddy fields in the morning when the animal attacked them at the Ambira Nejistoli village under the jurisdiction of Karanj police station on Bando Block, a senior officer says. These, I'm going to just skip the place names because they're all in Indian, uh, they're Indian names and I'm just terrible. I'll do my best to do the uh, names of the people though. 56 year old uh, Lalit Kishan died on the spot while Subhash Kishan, 25, and Mangleshwar Kishan, 35, sustained grievous injuries after the wild animal pounced on them suddenly. The injured were rushed to, uh, to a hospital, I'm just going to say a hospital, for primary treatment before they were referred to a medical institute of science, or sorry, uh, God, I can't pronounce the name, Rajendra Institute of Medical Science in Ranchi. Subhash Krishan, however, succumbed to his injuries in the facility, the officer said. The incident took place at Embera, a village of 200 households working uh, between 5am and 6am on Thursday when the three farmers were working on the farms. Divisional Forest Officer Gumla uh, Sikrant Verma told PTI, which is the uh, website that published this, the village is adjacent to Launda Forest. As per the information we received, the sloth bear was passing through the farm field and it suddenly attacked the farmers and killed one person on the field and left two critically injured, he said. He said that the two injured Subhash and Mangla, uh, sorry, Mangleshwa were immediately brought to Ranchi. Subhash, however, succumbed to his injuries. Mangleshwa is undergoing treatment and his condition is stable. All three people had serious face, face and head injuries, Virma said. The incident of a bear attack at Embira village is rare, even though there is a presence of a large presence of the animals in hills between Embera and Ambula villages, he said. 
The next of kin of the deceased will be given an ex gratia of four la. Uh, oh, okay. Not sure what this says. RS4 la each, as per the rules. I think the translation has failed there. Uh, I guess RS stands for rubles or, or whatever the uh, Indian currency is. I'm going to just say dollars, but a, whatever the Indian currency is, you go with that, okay? We have already given the, uh, we have already given $200,000 slash whatever it is to each of the family members of the two people who died in the bear attack, Vera said. Besides elephants, man-bear conflicts also cause huge damage to life and property in Jakhand. As per an estimation of the forest department, the population of sloth bears could be between 1,200 and 1,500 in Jarkland. There are eight subspecies of bear in the world, which of which four, the Asiatic black bear, including Himalayan brown, Malayan sun bear, and sloth bear are all found in India. Um, yeah, so sloth bears, as we learned from the mice law sloth bear story, um, extremely aggressive animals. Uh, will not hesitate to tear someone apart and the, like the uh, like the bear from Japan that we covered a couple of weeks ago they do not hesitate um, to go for the face and the neck um, that's why so many of these people die from crush injuries to their heads uh, obviously super sad for that person's family although that family because it was three people in the same family uh, hopefully those that survive recover relatively well uh, and yeah thoughts and well wishes to the uh, the person who passed away and next story uh, thank god is a bit more light-hearted we haven't had a light-hearted one for a little bit um, this is about a moose that attacks a man isn't that lovely um, the headline is spring is in the air tourist tries to pat the moose instantly gets attacked um, this is from a website I believe that focuses on sporting so I think that this is like the context of this is they're talking about um, I think a, like a jet ski event or something I think it's in Canada let's let's read we'll see what happens it's like hearing gentlemen start your engines at the Indianapolis 500. It's been said that the season opener for spring is the first time of the new year a tourist at a national at, at a natural destination such as Yellowstone National Park does something that prompts a wild animal attack. Even if the attack didn't happen in Yellowstone, which appears to be the case in this event, it still marks an important time of the year, when the much-anticipated mauling season is right around the corner. Jesus Christ, these people are not handling this subject with as much tact as we would on man-eaters. Uh, but I'm a professional at this point. These guys are not. In all accounts, oh sorry, by all accounts, yeah, I'm so professional, I can't read. By all accounts, the first event of the year occurred a few weeks ago in Canada, according to the Canadian website Nouvelles. The title of the video posted on the site tells the story, Never Pat a Wild Moose. Oh, by the way, for those in North America, we say pat, like I'm going to pat the dog, not pet the dog. Uh, yeah, just because that seems to be important to the story, I'm going to say pat, not pet, because it seems weird to me. Of course, the video goes on to show that's a wise bit of advice. The video shows a snowmobiler climbing off his snow machine and walking over to a che to cheerfully greet a moose like he's meeting Bullwinkle at a carnival. However, Bullwinkle is not happy to see him. Instead of shaking the tourist's hand, the moose gets up on his hind legs and knocks him down, then repeatedly kicks him. Okay. No mercy. When the guy attempts to roll to safety, the moose follows him and continues to pummel him. 
in fighting parlance since an absolute ass whooping. Then, in English, a voice announces that the moose broke the tourist's leg. Seconds later, the video shows the kick that may have just done that. In the meantime, the tourist's friends appear to show some concern. Well, you would hope so. But not enough to risk the wrath of the miffed moose. Mostly... <laughs> I do, I do like that alliteration. Mostly the injured tourists' pals, including the guy who kept the camera rolling the entire time, just have a front row seat to the epic battle between a snowmobiler and a force of nature weighing in at more than 1,000 pounds. The condition of the tourist is unknown. Many of the French-speaking commenters, however, mention his snowmobile escaped serious injury. Wow, that just shows you the priorities of Canadians. The clock is now ticking for the first event in Yellowstone. Yikes, these people at this website do not seem to hold the idea of animal attacks with any reference or fear. Um, they're, just, they're just waiting for a brown bear to eat some poor Japanese tourist's face, I guess. Um, but yeah, don't pat a moose, dumbass. Um, I don't know if... You, uh, moose are an example of the animals where like... Inherently, I know they're large animals, but when you see videos of them next to people, you're like, holy shit, that thing is massive. Uh, as I mentioned, like, I went to the zoo a while ago and saw a giraffe. Obviously, giraffes are tall. That's, like, I, like babies know that. That's, like, the first thing they teach you is that giraffes are tall. But I was still surprised <laughs> at how tall they were. And I think the same thing happens with a moose. So, yeah, don't pat the moose, uh, Mr. Tourist, and I hope you're okay. I like how it says the condition of the tourist is unknown, but the French-speaking commenters mention that the snowbill is okay. So, snowmobile's fine. Uh, guy may be dead, but that's that's fine. That's that Canadian sense of prioritizing. Um, we have our first ever follow-up pup now. So, a follow-up pup, we're just going to do a uh, follow-up to a story that we've covered in the past. Um, this is a follow-up to a Scratch of the Day segment from, I think, last week or the week before. Uh, if you remember, a... Uh, dolphin named Sundance, I believe, um, attacked a trainer by continually ramming her towards the side of the, um, the tank at Miami Seaquarium. So there is a follow-up pup. Um, the headline is, an animal trainer is on the road to recovery. The Miami Seaquarium employee posed with a stuffed dolphin on social, in a social media post, writing on Instagram that she's doing well after being attacked by a dolphin. She was injured while performing at the Seaquarium's Dolphin Flipper Show on April 9th, but posted that she doesn't blame the animal for what happened. Well, you would hope not. It's an animal. When you keep animals in little... Uh, I'll, I've got to stop myself from going on a rant. SeaWorld sucks. This isn't SeaWorld. It's a Seaquarium, but still, it sucks. An investigation revealed that she had accidentally scratched the dolphin and the animal reacted. I was thinking about this the other day, about how, how do you scratch a dolphin? Like, um, you don't have claws. I would imagine that these trainers are instructed to keep their nails short for this exact reason. Um, so potentially she scratched on a nail, maybe a toenail or something like that. I also thought that maybe um, she, the dolphin could have become scratched on like the zipper on her wetsuit or something like that. But that's just purely speculation. I was just thinking about it in the supermarket the other day and I was like, I bet it was the zipper. I bet it was the zipper. So they need to design their wetsuits with zippers on the inside or something. I, I don't really know. Better yet, don't keep dolphins and, and killer whales um, in tanks. Let them go into uh, sanctuaries. But that's a story for another time. Pretty good. 
pretty good. Okay, and we're going to end our episode today on episode 20. This is 20 whole episodes away, ago, 20 episodes ago. Um, this was the first time one of our episodes kind of went, you know, did better than it should. Usually the podcast episodes get, you know, like a, maybe 100 or 200 uh, views in a week. This one sort of doubled that and I wasn't sure why. And then when I look back, it's because I named the title something sensational. So if you're not a fan of the titles that are a little bit sensational or maybe a bit clickbaity, you can blame this episode. This is episode 20, The Arctic Circle of Hell. We did it, episode 20, and it's a good episode as well. I hope you're nice and rugged up, okay? I hope you've got a, a big, thick jacket on. I think you've, I hope you've got your long, long johns on. I hope you've got a little campfire going because we're getting cold today. We're getting ice, ice cold, baby, because we are talking about not just one, but two animal attacks that happened in frozen tundras, in frigid wastelands, in icy terrains. We are talking about, uh, we're going to call this episode the Arctic Circle of Hell. Even though only one of the stories actually happens in the Arctic Circle and the other one's in Antarctica, I just was like trying to be cute with the name. Uh, but yeah, we're going to jump straight into it. But first, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us for our 20th episode. Um, the pod has been gone for like nearly six months, I think, uh, and I've been really having a great time. And I, I didn't think we'd get to 20 episodes, actually. Um, when we first started it, about eight episodes, and then kind of just ran out of steam and stopped. But um, from episode eight, we've been going once a week. I've really enjoyed um, making this uh, podcast for you uh, each week. It's it's brought a lot of joy. It sparked joy in my little old brain at a time when not a lot of other things do spark joy for me. So uh, it, it's been a privilege to get to do this. And um, here's to the next twenty. Okay, let us now move on to the main story of the day, or part two stories. Let's call it part. Part one and part two. Our first story takes place up north in the uh, in the Arctic Circle. It's an animal that we have not covered before. Uh, we are talking about a polar bear. Now we've talked about sloth bears before. We've talked about grizzly grizzly bears before. We have not covered polar bears. Polar bears are the largest terrestrial predators in the on the planet, and unlike a lot of other bears. Um, they're not omnivorous. Most other bears are omnivorous. They'll eat fish, they'll eat meat, but they'll also subsist on berries and fruits and stuff like that. Polar bears do not have that luxury because fruit and vegetables are hard to come by in the frozen tundras of the uh, Arctic Circle. These guys eat meat, um, and polar bears are like dash hounds on, on crack, okay? They, they've, they've got a sense of smell that dwarfs almost any other animal that lives on land. Um, they can smell blood from miles and miles away. Their coats are pure white, um, and that is a way to camouflage themselves. Uh, it's very difficult to see a polar bear coming if you are a little seal or something like that. Um, mainly because, uh, you know, it's not just like, <laughs> it's not just still out there. There's snow and there's blizzards happening. And if you're being stalked by a big hungry polar bear, you probably won't know it, you poor little seal. All right, let's get into this. This is part one of our two-part story. Part one, the Svalbard polar bear attack. Svalbard, a cluster of islands located halfway between Norway and the North Pole, is a desolate country of ice and barren rock. There are just over 2,500 residents, almost all of whom live in the Long Yeben Administrative Center. As many as 3,000 polar bears, the world's largest terrestrial predator, live alongside them. Anyone traveling into the wilds of Svalbard does so only after being well prepared with bear alarms, flare mines, and high-powered guns. 
Even though the members of a 2011 British school exploring society expedition to Svalbard took these precautions, a famished polar bear assault early in the morning killed one member and severely injured others. The 80-strong group of teens and adult guides arrived in Svalbard on July 23rd with the intention of spending over a month exploring the archipelago. Horatio Chapel, a 17-year-old student at Eton College and an aspiring doctor, was one of them. Chapel and 11 other pupils and two professors hiked to the Von Post Glacier in the middle of the tour. The group stayed on a snow bridge near the glacier which was notorious for polar bear sightings. A huge, albeit malnourished, male polar bear approached the camp in the early hours of August 5th. The tripwires that were supposed to set off the alarms and flares did not work. While no one knows for sure, the most likely explanation is that the bear knocked over a supporting post, dislodging the mind-triggering cartridge. Chapel had just emerged from his tent and was about to stand up when he was rushed by the 550-pound monster at 7.30am. The bear mauled the adolescent around the head, face, and neck, killing him after it reared up and battered him to the ground. The bear attacked again, seriously injuring two of his tentmates. Instructor Michael Reed, who was in control of the group's single firearm, a Mauser 98 caliber from World War II, was startled awake by the warning cries. Later, he detailed carefully aiming at the bear to, to avoid harming any of the young explorers, only for the weapon to fail to discharge. The gun continued to misfire despite several attempts to chamber a cartridge. He called to other members of the gang to fire pen flares in an attempt to scare the attacker away while grappling with the gun. Reed was then attacked by the bear, who knocked him off his feet and bit him on the head. He tried unsuccessfully to tear out the bear's eyes, but was saved when tour leader Andrew Ruck threw rocks at it, distracting the beast. Ruck was then seriously mauled, but Reed was able to reload the gun and kill the beast in that time. The group had chosen tripwire flares over a nighttime watch or guard dogs, according to an inquest into Chapel's killing, a decision that resulted in them being caught off guard during the attack when the trips failed to ignite. While it was later determined that the attack would not have occurred if the party had stayed in cabins rather than tents, there was no legal need for this at the time. The group was also found to be missing equipment, including a piece of the tripwire alarm system, although a coroner subsequently determined that the expedition company fails, failings were not to blame for the deaths. While Chapel was killed before Reed attempted to shoot the bear, the poor condition of the rifle they were carrying and the instructor's lack of training in its use definitely contributed to later casualties. The inquest discovered that the weapon's training was restricted to four shots per team member and rudimentary handling instruction. Because of the lack of training, the instructors were unfamiliar with the safety mechanism, which prevented the rifle from being loaded while the safety was activated. Instead, rounds were expelled, which was consistent with Reed's later account in the occurrence. After Chapel's death, more than £250,000 were raised to build Horatio's Garden, an outdoor area for patients at the Duke of Cornwall Spinal Treatment Centre in Salisbury, where his father worked as a surgeon. Chapel came up with the idea of the garden after completing work experience at the centre. So that was our first part of this story. Uh, one of the um, most famous polar bear attacks in uh, in modern history. Um, there have been many accounts of polar bears attacking humans. Um, polar bears 
typically will keep to themselves, but they, they're not actually afraid of people. They, they don't have that innate fear that a lot of other bear species do. Um, there have been uh, accounts of polar bears traveling into towns, uh, walking down main streets um, when they get hungry enough in places like, uh, I believe, like Alaska and northern Canada, um, as well as in Russia. Polar bears are not animals that you want to fuck with <laughs> at all. Um, there is a video on YouTube you can watch. It's from a documentary. There's a guy who's in this, like, uh, what would you call it? Like a plexiglass, a, pe a plexiglass, um, I think it's a vehicle, but it could just be, like, kind of a tent. Um, and he, he barricades himself inside, but a polar bear has approached and walked up to him and has basically smelled that there's food inside. And it is just rock. It's throwing its entire weight against the thing. It's trying to break its claws in there and, and it's, it's it's finding the weakest parts of the vehicle and getting very close to breaking in and you can see that the guy who's filming the documentary and filming this polar bear up close li literally inches away from this um animal you can tell he's starting to lose his cool a little bit he's actually getting a little bit scared that this uh vehicle might not be able to withstand the bear um so if you can look that up i i don't know what you'd like bear uh, polar bear do you, I reckon if you just search polar bear, that video will come up. It's uh, it's a really good example of, um, or a really good, uh, I guess, explanation as to the power behind these animals. Um, so yeah, very sad for uh, Horatio Chapel who passed away after being attacked on a school trip, which is which is um pretty devastating. Uh, there I've heard also that there are places um in the Arctic Circle, it's illegal to not carry firearms with you. Um, I'm not a big firearms person. You know, most people in Australia are pretty, like, anti-gun. Um, anti oh, that's a bit of a generalization, but most people I know don't love guns. Um, but, yeah, I, you wouldn't catch me dead without a firearm if there are polar bears around. Um, it is a shame that these, this group decided to go with um, the, the trip mine flares uh, rather than a just a simple, you know, guard staying up late or a you know, dogs or anything like that, um, because the flares didn't go off, the group was just caught, uh, with their pants down, essentially, and was just completely, uh, left open to this bear attacking them, um, they're lucky that it was only one person that died and a few injuries, uh, if the gun continued to not fail, the bear could have kept going, there's nothing you can do to stop it, uh, <laughs> at that point, if the gun didn't work at all, and the, the flares weren't going off, it's very possible that, like, there were 80 people in this group. It's it's possible all of them could have gotten killed if they didn't make it away. We're going to move on uh, from the Arctic Circle up north. We're going all the way to the other side of the country, uh, all the other side to the other side of the world, to Antarctica, closer to my home country of Australia. Um, we're going to Antarctica, and we're going to talk about uh, one of, if not the only known case of a human being killed by a leopard seal. So this is part two of our story, the Antarctic leopard seal attack. While snorkeling in Antarctica in 2003, British researcher Kirsty Brown, a member of the British Antarctic Survey, was tragically attacked by a leopard seal. While this was the first documented human death caused by a leopard seal, evidence that this formidable Antarctic predator posed a substantial threat to humans had been mounting for more than a century. 28-year-old Brown was part of a British Antarctic survey crew of 22 people who spent the winter at the Rothera Research Station on the Antarctic Peninsula. The station, serves as the, the station serves as the United Kingdom's scientific presence on the continent, serving as a base of operations for research into biology, geoscience, and atmospheric science. 
Brown was a skilled diver who had previously participated in at least two Arctic Circle and Australian trips. Brown was snorkeling with another research team member at a study site in one of Adelaide Island's bays near Rothera Station when she was attacked by a leopard seal. When she was dragged underneath, she was around 25 meters from the shore. After hearing a scream and seeing her vanish, a second team member on shore launched a rescue boat and she was retrieved from the ocean within 10 minutes. Brown could not be revived, despite her colleagues' efforts in the boat, as they returned to the research station in the following attention of a station's doctor. It turns out she'd been held underwater for roughly 6 minutes at depths of up to 70 meters, suffering 45 different lacerations and other injuries. Her death was ruled as an accidental drowning due to a leopard seal attack, according to the coroner's findings. The British Antarctic Survey team's safety standards were deemed to have been followed, including a precaution that team members should not enter the water if a leopard seal was present. Before it attacked Brown, the animal had not been seen. Brown may have seen the seal approaching her while snorkeling, according to reports. Scottish biologist Dr Ian Boyd identified three plausible explanations for the attack as part of the investigation into her death. Brown may have been mistaken for a fur seal or another common prey animal by the seal, or she may have spooked the animal and forced it to strike in self-defense as a result of her presence. The leopard seal stalked and killed her in a predatory attack, which is the most terrifying part. While leopard seal assaults are extremely unusual, Boyd closed his comments by warning that rising human activity in Antarctica increases the likelihood of them becoming more regular. Leopard seals are one of the top predators in the Antarctic, reaching lengths of up to 3.5 meters and weighing up to 600 kilograms. They have a similar ecological niche in the Arctic as the polar bear, although they are mostly restricted to hunting in the water, whereas the white bear spends most of its time on land. Their only known predators are killer whales. They have jaws that are unusually enormous for their size, with one-inch teeth. Adults mostly hunt penguins and other seals, while juveniles eat krill, fish, and cephalopods. While Brown was the first victim of the fatal attack, there have been other occurrences that appear to be predatory in nature. After becoming separated from the rest of his crew during Ernest Shackleton's 1914-1917 Trans-Antarctic Expedition, Thomas Ord Lees was chased across sea ice by a leopard seal. Frank Wilde, one of his companions, heard his cries for help and shot the beast dead. Gareth Wood, a Scottish explorer, was bitten twice in the leg by a leopard seal in 1985. The animal tried to drag him into the ocean, but he was saved when other members of his team used the sharpened crampons to stamp on the seal's head. Inflatable boat attacks are now becoming more regular, to the point where researchers are now equipping their vessels with unique guards to prevent punctures. And there you have it, uh, two extremely, uh, well, the polar bear is not super rare, but a very rare attack involving a leopard seal. Um, although, as you just heard, those attacks are becoming more and more frequent due to increased human activity. And of course, yes, an, an attack from a polar bear in Svalbard. Um, terrifying. Uh, we've talked a lot about what animals are the most terrifying to be attacked by. And I've always said bears are up there and big cats are scary as well. We haven't talked really about where the most terrifying place to be attacked would be. Um, for me, number one would be the ocean, uh, just because the idea of being dragged on the water is so terrifying. But a close two for me would have to be like a Antarctica or the Arctic. Just 
Imagine just being in the middle of nowhere and it's freezing cold and the wind is blowing and you're just being, you're just being ripped to pieces by this wild animal that hasn't eaten in months and is starving to death and you're at, you're at lunch. It's absolutely terrifying to me. Um, so very sad that the, uh, the woman lost her life in 2003. She was 28. That's how old I am. Um, so it, it is very sad. I also, it's just surprising that she was snorkeling in Antarctica, but I guess that was part of her job. Um, leopard seals, if you haven't seen them, give them a Google because they are really interesting looking animals. They're like wolves that live in the ocean. They look big giant dogs. Um, I didn't realize how big they could get though. Um, this one said that it was like 3.5 meters long, where they can grow up to 3.5 meters long and weigh up to 600 kilograms. For those of you in the US, that's that's 11.5 feet and it's about 1,320 pounds. So these are big animals. To be the, the apex predator in any environment, let alone something as um, uh, brutal as the Antarctic, means that you have evolved to become something near perfect. For your only natural predator to be a killer whale, which in itself is a devastatingly effective predator, um, means that you have you have reached the climax of, of what your evolution can get you to do. Um, these animals are massive. Their, their mouths can open so wide, um, they could easily fit a human head into them. I don't know what the crush strength of their jaws are. I, I don't know. Um, she, if, if it was anything like a killer whale, she could have been bitten in half, this woman, but she wasn't. Um, she was dragged 70 meters below the surface of the water. That's, um, fuck, that's brutal. That's really deep. That's really deep down. That's getting to the point where you can't see much anymore because the light's starting to go away. Um, she's lucky that she, well, she's not lucky because she died, but they're, they're lucky that she made it to the surface at all. Um, yeah, yeah, she probably floated to the surface now that I think about it. Uh, very sad stories. Let's move on now to my favorite segment of the show. We are going to do the scratch of the day. Uh, we've got three stories in our scratch of the day, including one that was sent in by a listener, which we're going to get to at the end. Um, our first one comes from Australia, um, and it's been in the news all week. Uh, a Lake Argyle crocodile attack. So this is the story. A woman has been hospitalized with serious leg injuries after being bitten by a freshwater crocodile at Lake Argyle in far northwestern Australia. The 38-year-old was swimming at Butler Cove on Monday when the unprovoked attack happened, authorities confirmed on Wednesday. She was taken to a hospital and is in stable condition. A two-meter freshwater crocodile was seen in the area soon after the incident, according to the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions. Parks and Wildlife staff conducted a conducted a patrol of Butler Clove, Cove the following day, and a freshwater crocodile of the same size approached their boat. Both the behavior of a crocodile approaching the boat and the events of the previous day is consistent with what staff would identify as an animal problem. As a problem animal, I'm, I'm sorry, the DBCA spokeswoman said. In order to ensure public safety in the popular recreation swimming area, and with consideration to large community events such as the annual Lake Argyle swim taking place this weekend, staff destroyed the animal. Lake Argyle is home to a large population of freshwater crocodiles. Unlike their saltwater counterparts, freshwater crocodiles are not usually considered to be dangerous but have capacity to cause serious injuries. Anyone who encounters a freshwater crocodile interacting with people swimming, fishing or boating is encouraged to report the sighting to their local parks and wildlife service office. As with all animals, freshwater crocodile behavior can change if people feed or interact with them. The animals can begin seeking out people as a source of food and start exhibiting dangerous behavior, the spokeswoman said. 
the public is reminded not to feed or approach wildlife whilst recreating in the Kimberley. Um, yeah, it's interesting. When I first saw this uh, headline, I thought, okay, so saltwater crocodile, not that unusual, maybe not even newsworthy. It happens every day, um, as our good friend Clive Palmer, not Clive Palmer, who's the crazy guy with the cowboy hat? Uh, fuck, what's his name? Oh, that's going to kill me. You know, the one with the cowboy hat, and he's like, oh, all the gay people can kiss, it's fine, but I'm not having any of it because of the crocodiles. Uh, that's going to kill me. We'll come back to it later. <laughs> anyway, freshwater crocodile is what makes this interesting. Uh, we're taught in school, you know, the freshwater crocodile is the more gentle, smaller, more docile, less harmful version of the saltwater crocodile. But of course, there are still crocodiles and they shouldn't be fucked with at all. Um, but I would venture to say that if this was a saltwater crocodile, not a freshwater crocodile, this woman would not be able to make any uh, statements from hospital. She would be dead. Um, I also saw, like, when I was Googling this story, um, a lot of the follow-up is that there was a bit of, uh, what do you call it, controversy that the Lake Argyle swim was happening the, the following weekend anyway, um, regardless of the fact that the animal had been killed. Uh, people were kind of shocked that, that that event was going ahead, but it did apparently go ahead and uh, without any incident as far as I'm aware. Um, we're going to move on to another um, terrifying animal attack that happened in the news this week. Uh, the headline is, Great White Shark plunges teeth into dad and son's kayak before sending it flying in a terrifying attack. That's a long headline. Here's the story. Daniel Sullivan was out in a kayak off the coast of Hawaii with his son Tristan when he says the shark attacked in the most visceral image I've ever seen. The 46-year-old said he was looking for whales with his son when he struck his when he stuck his camera housing into the sea. Mr. Sullivan then describes how the kayak was struck suddenly from underneath and thrown out of the water. He said, "As I looked down on either side of my legs were the jaws of a massive great white shark. It was the most terrifying visceral image I've ever seen." The impact sent the kayak and all the camera equipment flying into the air and plunging into the ocean depths. Mr. Sullivan told the Daily Star, as the giant shark's teeth dug into the boat, he pulled us back on top of him. As I fell into the water, I was still holding my paddle. I began beating him away from me. He explains how he made sure his son was safe and got back onto the kayak, only for the shark to flip it over again and leave them both terrified. The pair then found themselves lying on the boat with a hole ripped out by the shark, stranded in open sea while the great white circled below. They attempted to swim to shore with just a metal camera housing as a potential weapon should the shark attack again. In a twist of fate that can only be put down to luck, the shark never returned on their panic-stricken journey to the Hawaiian coastline. Recalling the moment they reached the Maui Islands west side, Mr. F Mr. Sullivan said, We were both alive and in many ways I'd felt that I'd been given a second chance. The next day I remember waking up and kissing my wife and three kids so happy I was alive. Mr. Sullivan is now looking to raise £22,343 to cover the cost of his new book featured, featuring the nature photography he took while being attacked in February of 2022. Uh, wow, yes, okay. So that story, not that recently, it was recently published, I believe, but if it was attacked in February 2022, it's a few months old. Still pretty freaking scary. Um, yeah, Great Whites. We'll have to do a story about Great White Sharks um, soon. I think we're going to do the, the Jersey Shore shark attacks from um, from 1915, I think it is. We talked about the... Um, 
the summer of the shark in 2001. Um, but the real point of that story is that it wasn't a story, that it wasn't like an anomaly, that there were more shark attacks. It was just that we were reporting them more and then 9-11 happened and we stopped talking about it. Um, but in Jersey Shore, it's kind of like what happened in the movie Jaws. It was an actual shark that was killing multiple people. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll probably talk about that soon. Um, but yeah, sharks definitely up there on the list of animals you wouldn't want uh, to knock you off a kayak. Um, our final story, and this one was sent to me by a uh, listener named Mike. So thank you to Mike. Uh, this is a really sad story. So heads up for that. Um, it does involve a child's death. Uh, if you want to stop listening or skip to the end. Um, little girl mauled to death by lion while on picnic to enjoy Eid celebrations. Also happy Eid to anyone who celebrates that. This happened in Dubai. Okay. Or at least the report comes from Dubai. I, tr uh, I think it was, uh, sorry, I'm wrong. This is a Sudanese family, so I believe in Sudan. A trip that promised joy turned into tragedy for a Sudanese family after their daughter has been mauled to death by a lion while visiting a zoo in Dinder City, 400 kilometers south of Khartoum, local media reported. The 10-year-old is said to have gone out on a picnic with her family to a wildlife park zoo to enjoy the Eid holiday, but was unexpectedly attacked by a lion when she approached its den without paying attention to warning signs, asking visitors to not approach or try to feed the predator. Fueled by curiosity, the victim bent her head towards the den, unaware of the gravity of what she was doing. In that very moment, the lion attacked the girl, causing her fatal injuries. The victim's sister was standing next to her, but miraculously survived the attack. The, fam the victim's family, together with a number of visitors, tried to free her from the clutches of the lion, but all attempts were unsuccessful. After several failed attempts, one of the little girl's relatives managed to pull her bravely from between the jaws of the lion. Uh, the jaws are, this is misspelled, the lion to the hospital, but it was too late. She died on the way to a hospital nearby. Um, yeah. I don't know why I always put the saddest story at the end. It really bums people out. Um, but that's got to be one of the saddest stories we've heard. Um, also, what kind of, like, I don't know much about Sudan, but what kind of zoo is this where you just walk up to, like, an open lion enclosure? Um, maybe it's more of a safari thing, but if it is, what, what are you doing on a picnic there? Just seems like you're asking for trouble, but um, not to victim blame. Things happen. Um, mistakes are made, but yeah, this little girl, unfortunately, no longer with us. Um, and yeah, I don't know what happened to the lion. There's no information. Presumably, the lion was fine. Um, yeah, I guess thoughts and well wishes go to that family. As with all the families of people um, who passed away from animals in all the stories today, a uh, bit of an interesting uh, episode today. Like lots of the, well, all of the stories happened recently. 2003 for the leopard seal, 2011 for the polar bear, and then these three stories happening at the very least um, since February 2022. Um, so yeah, very, very recent. I talk about this a lot, and I don't want to like harp on it, but. When we do stories like the Chumpawat Tiger or the Leopard of Rue de Priang or like, um, or e even like the, the Brown Bear of uh, Sakabetsu, these, these stories happen like up to 100 years ago. And it is easy to become disconnected from those stories until you remember the real people. When these stories happen so recently, um, particularly for me, I'm, I'm 28, so 2011, uh, that was only 11 years ago. Um, I remember what I was doing. I was like in year 12. So... I was probably near the age of the kid who was killed. I was the exact age, actually, as the kid who was killed. Um, yeah, that, I didn't even realize that. If, if, this, if the guy who was killed by the polar bear was still alive, we would be the same age. Um, yeah, far out. It, it does 
put it into perspective when, and it's kind of selfish, but when you can sort of like imagine yourself in those scenarios. And the girl who died, um, she was 28 as well in 2003. So yeah, a lot of young people are passing away from animal attacks. It's just a reminder, you know, we don't own the planet. We like to think we do, but we don't. We're, we're, we're roommates with all the animals on the planet. Um, and some of these animals are bad roommates, but you got to remember, they're just doing what they got to do to live. Um, no animal is evil. Um, only people are evil. Um, and, and it, you know, not to go too off topic, but what people do to animals um, and to the environment vastly outweighs anything any man-eater has ever done to anyone. Um, even the, you know, the chumpawat tiger killed 400 people over a few years. It's nothing compared to what there are hunters who are alive who've killed over 400 animals before so um we gotta like take that into context but it doesn't take away from the pain and suffering of these people and their families and what happened so um we're gonna leave that episode on that really depressing note and i'm gonna just brainstorm ways that i can make this episode end on a happy note um let's see we could do um we could play a game of uh pass the parcel we could talk about wordle Let's talk about Wordle. I listened to another podcast called If I Were You, which is just kind of devolved into them talking about Wordle for 45 minutes every episode, and I don't hate it. Um, my favorite starting word is audio because you get to use four vowels. And then I also like the word chasm for seemingly no reason. Also the word dildo for obvious reasons. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed the Arctic Circle of Hell. Another batch episode. Three stories there, I believe, of uh, uh, animals attacking people in Antarctica or or the Arctic Circle as well. Um, and thank you for everything. That this leads in very well to the thank you part of the of the session. This is the last episode of 2022. The last thing I'm recording this year, um, guys. It has been an absolute pleasure to record this show over the last 40 episodes over the last year and a half. Um, you know, I sometimes feel like I put on a cat. Okay. I'll be honest. I feel I'm a very modest person. And I know a lot of people say that I do not like attention. Um, I don't like bringing attention to myself. Uh, one of my tactics to deal with that is I, um, tend to fall into a character that's very dismissive of myself or of the things I do. And I pretend that I'm not proud of things. You've probably heard me on the show. Oh, this is a, that's a bad joke. This isn't funny. What a shit, in, what a shit intro. This is a bad podcast. You know, cards on the table, guys. I'm actually very proud of this show. Um, this is one of the funnest things I've ever been a part of and done and created, and I have no intentions of stopping now. Um, you know, w there have been uh, hiccups along the way. There've been, you know, month-long gaps, and that's going to happen. I can't promise it won't happen going forward, uh, but I am going to make every effort to make a more, uh, and this is not the first time I've said that, this I know, but I am going to make every effort to come up with a more uh, consistent release schedule um, so that you can get these episodes. And also a lot of the feedback I've been getting is that you like the longer episodes. So um, we are going to be trying to, you know, cater for that as well. So longer episodes, hopefully more frequent episodes going into 2023. Um, but yeah, you know, this is the part of the show where I just have to say thank you um there are we we hit over twenty thousand streams this year which you know in the grand scheme of podcasting is not a lot but i i ran into my friend dom who's the host of his own podcast called review time um and he i think correctly pointed out you know the twenty thousand streams it's not nothing um especially when 
these the 20,000 streams, they're coming from people and places I don't know. I've never met you before. These aren't, um, you're not people in my actual life who are just listening to this out of pity or to, you know, to make me feel better. You're, you're people overseas in America for the majority of you in America and Canada listening to the show. Uh, so I, I just want to say thank you for your support. Um, it's, it, it warms the cockles of my heart and also my cock, uh, when I get to see the little numbers tick up and, uh, get to hear back from you in, uh, on, on the Patreon or through the comments on YouTube or on the Instagram, any of that kind of stuff. It really is, it really is lovely. I think that, um, I, I love feedback, even if it's negative feedback, knowing that you're there listening, it means a lot. So, uh, I can't wait for 2023. It's going to be a fantastic year. Um, the goals, I, I think we would, Oh, let's try to double what we've got. Let's try it. Let's aim for, let's aim for 50,000 streams by the end of 2023. And let's go for, uh, how many episodes? 80. Let's aim for 80 episodes, another 40 episodes next year. Uh, that's, that's the plan guys. Um, so yeah, thank you for joining me on this little man eaters journey. It's, it's been an honor to be with you. I'm going to take a couple weeks off now, but by the time this episode comes out, you're probably going to hear from me again fairly soon with a new episode. I don't know when the episode for 2023 will start, but, um, you know, they will stay tuned, subscribe on all the bullshit. If you're on Spotify, you can follow it and, uh, subscribe to it. If you're on Apple or Google podcasts, wherever you're listening to your podcast, just subscribe and leave me a little, uh, review as well. Uh, a five-star review helps a lot. Um, we're looking to do some really interesting uh, series next year. Um, we're looking for new segment ideas for next year as well for the episodes. Uh, so if you have any ideas for that kind of stuff, please let me know. Uh, of course, we're doing more Killer Cryptid episodes. Uh, we're going to do more Man Eater movie episodes. We'll probably do a best of of those uh, sometime next year as well. But currently, there's only like one or two episodes of those series. Um, but yeah, like you know, like I said, I'm extremely excited and extremely proud to be running the show into next year. Uh, and I hope to see you there. Uh, sincerely, from the bottom of my fart. <laughs> sorry, I meant to say heart. From the bottom of my heart, I hope you guys have a happy holidays wherever you are. The world is a bit of a crazy place right now, but let's let's take some time to really focus on what matters, uh, our, our friends and our families. Uh, and, you know, like, look after yourselves, guys. Look after yourself. Take some time for yourself. Don't work yourself too hard. That's the lesson I've learned from this whole year is you just got to chill out. Don't work yourself too hard. Um, take breaks when you need to. And uh, hopefully the Christmas period, the Christmas Hanukkah holiday area of the year is uh, exactly what you need for a little deserved R&R. And, uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll see you next year. And I really want you to promise me to stay safe because as we've learned, baby, it's a jungle out there. 2023. Woohoo. 2022. Boo. Clap, clap, clap. Okay. Farewell. <laughs>